Sunday Night Health Show podcast. We are talking about AI, artificial intelligence, and the impact it will have on kids and teachers in the classroom. Speaking of classrooms, what about COVID? Jason Tetro joins me, he's a microbiologist, as we head indoors this fall and winter. What does that mean for that pesky little virus? What about the booster? Will you be getting one? Also, love your spouse but don't want to sleep with them? You might consider a sleep divorce. We catch up with Dr. Tommy Mitchell to talk about what's going on with Mitch McConnell, U.S. Senate Minority Leader, and also Canada's darling, Celine Dion. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. For the first time ever, youth are returning back to school with the most powerful tool yet, artificial intelligence. We've heard a lot about that. The question is, how do we support this innovation while ensuring education continues to be seamless and prominent for students? A leading trend with this technology that we're seeing in 2023 is generative AI in the classrooms, an increased use of technology, leaving parents wondering what this means for students. From academic dishonesty to curriculum improvements, we need to ensure parents, educators, and youth are aligned on the values of this technology and its best practices. Joining me on the line to talk about this is Jennifer Flanagan. She is the CEO at Actua, a science and technology education organization, and we're going to talk about this. Good evening, Jennifer. Good evening. Nice to be here. Nice to be here. We're talking so much about AI, and I think a lot of times we don't even understand its power, the pros and cons, the role that parents can play in nurturing youth to develop valuable, transferable skills. What are the ben- First of all, what is, benef- uh, what is AI, and how is it used in the classroom? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it, this is, I first want to, to say that this is extremely new technology. And for those listeners out there who are, you know, their head is spinning just by the intro, um, this is changing very quickly. This is rapidly developing technology. The good news is that we can, you know, work to understand it as parents and work to support what's happening with our kids, both in the classroom and outside of the classroom. Um, and and you you mentioned you know generative AI so artificial intelligence is really you know computer systems acting like humans or as close to humans as possible so you know um, using computer uh, computers and big amounts of data so just you know massive millions of data points um, and you know pulling that together to perform human like functions. And so, you know, we're hearing a lot about something like chat GPT, and I'm sure we'll talk about this. And, um, uh, and, and it's one that has, you know, hit the world by storm. It is the question we're getting asked about most uh, by parents and teachers. Um, and it is an application of artificial intelligence that, you know, virtually all students that have access to a device have chat GPT. And, and, you know, simply put, uh, somebody can just go on to chat GPT, a student, and they can say, can you write me an essay on all of the prime ministers of Canada? And within minutes, a lovely essay, uh, or at least the framework for that essay, will be delivered to that student. And does does this impact learning? Yeah, so I'll I'll take it a, a step further just to show the power. With ChatGPT, not only would it be able to write an essay like that, it would take seconds, not minutes. And it would, you could even say, write me an, an essay on Canadian prime ministers uh, as a grade 10 student or as a grade 7 student. Um, and it would do it in minutes. It wouldn't be an outline. It would be a full and complete essay. So it is incredibly powerful. Basically, the way I describe ChatGPT to people is, is it's a language model that pulls, again, millions of data points in and uh, creates answers to your questions in incredibly intelligent, intuitive ways. Um, so it's a w- big step from just Googling something. Um, it's actually generating these responses. There can be excellent uses of chat GPT in the classroom, and we're seeing a lot of positive stories, um, mainly from teachers, which is incredible to me that teachers have um, adopted this so quickly in their classroom and um, are using it for 
to basically help them with some of the heavy lifting work, right? Where teachers have so much on their plates from lesson plans to, you know, building out activities to report cards. ChatGPT can actually help them with those things so that they can have more time to do that one-on-one learning and teaching that we want, you know, we want them to be spending their time on in the classroom. So there's a lot of positive. There's also a lot that, you know, of course, parents have to be aware of and teachers have to be aware of. And getting back to homework, that bone of contention for yes. many parents, um, you know, yeah. the answer to the question, have you finished your homework, might very well be yes, <laughs> within seconds. And they may not be lying. <laughs> right. And, and that's why the conversation needs to be happening inside, you know, inside homes, inside classrooms. Um, because, of course, this is a very, um, very powerful tool. And it's very much like other tools, technology tools that we've seen introduced in the past, something like a Google or like a calculator even. You know, we, we worried when those technologies were introduced that, you know, learning is over and kids will never be able to think on their own. Um, AI is just another one of those tools, and we will adapt to it. So the conversation inside of homes needs to be around, like, have you used ChatGPT? How are you using it? What do you think about it? You know, how do you feel um, uh, it should be used or shouldn't be used? And teachers are definitely having this this conversation in, in classrooms, and there's all kinds of tools that they're using to, you know, figure out if students have used it to, to write homework. Um, but it, it, it comes back to face-to-face discussions that we're having with kids about how to best use this tool um, and how not to use this tool. And, and I have to say, um, you know, we know that lots of parents participate in their child's, their children's homework and projects in particular. Yeah. I, I remember somebody had done a gorgeous, it was grade one, um, a gorgeous architectural design um, for their child's science project. And, you know, we were at a dinner party and saying, okay, so which parent did that architectural <laughs> design for <laughs> the, the project? And, uh, you know, and so many parents are maybe going to be happy about this as well. I would imagine Mm -hmm. that they will be fantastic. You had an essay to write and it's done. Awesome. Great. Go to bed. I'm exhausted. Mm -hmm. Um, So how do we, you know, as these technologies emerge, how do we uh, support them so that they benefit Mm -hmm. children and parents as well? I mean, this is going to come down to guidelines And, and as a parent myself, I have two young children I have used, I use ChatGPT every day for a whole bunch of things, but one of them has been homework help. Um, And it was, you know, in the latter part of last year. And for me, you know, I use it, I have a, you know, a a daughter in grade eight and she was trying to, she was doing science homework. And, you know, I, I was trying to explain to her photosynthesis and photosynthesis in a really easy way. And so I put into ChatGPT, like explain photosynthesis to a child in grade five. And it is, I mean, this is one of the things that I love the most about it as a science educator um, is that it helps you to explain to to kids really difficult concepts in ways that they understand and ways that they can engage with. Um, And I showed her, I was like, look, this is how you can use this as a tool to remind yourself of some of the things that, you know, you're encountering that you might not remember from previous, um, previous years. There's so many ways that we can help guide them on how to use it, not just write the essay for me, but how about an outline? Or, you know, a lot of kids have trouble getting, getting started on, on things. And this is where the guidance from the teachers is going to have to come in. Like, this is where you can use ChatGPT, and this is where you can't in this particular assignment. And exactly. that's what we're hearing most um, of all, is, is these are the ways you can use it. Um, because it, it, it is still quite obvious when students use um, the ChatGPT for entire assignments. It's it's easy to pick out because you're you know the student. You've seen how they write in the past, and and you can tell when there are are, are obvious differences. We are talking about AI in the classroom. My guest is Jennifer Flanagan. She is CEO at Actua, a science and technology organization. Thanks for so much for staying on the line, Jennifer. My pleasure. My pleasure. Some parents this fall are thinking, yay, homework is going to be so much easier. My child is going to excel in school with AI. And and others are thinking, oh, no, what is this going to do? They're going to 
things are going to be worse in school and perhaps my child is going to be accused of plagiarism if we do utilize AI. Is AI plagiarism? So AI uh, is not. I mean, ChatGPT, for example, specifically is not plagiarism in the way that plagiarism that we understand it, which is copying someone's original work. The reason that it's not plagiarism is that, you know, it's a language model. It's designed uh, to provide us with original responses to whatever our questions are, rather than directly copying and pasting from whatever data it's pulling. So it's not actually technically plagiarism at all. Is it cheating? Well, that's a whole different thing, right? So I think it's, you know, the, dis- the distinction between plagiarism, which it isn't, and cheating, which, you know, depending on how it's being used and how it's allowed, how the teacher or educator has said that it can be used, it can, you know, move into the, the cheating domain. So that's, again, why it's so important that these conversations be, be happening. We were very concerned when ChatGPT was first launched that, you know, teachers are so overtaxed and the resources for training on these new technologies are, are typically, um, you know, there's a lag time. But um, I, as I had mentioned, I'm feeling we're super um, excited to see that many teachers over the summer have, you know, it's so easy to use. They've figured it out. There's lots of um, resources being developed already on this, and they are um, setting those guidelines in their classrooms uh, about how it can be used and how it's referenced. So, you know, I, I tell my kids, if you're using ChatGPT, you have to indicate that you've used it. Um, just put a note to say, this is how I used it. Um, and if the teacher then, you know, thinks that that's too much or too little, then, or not, they're not going to think it's too little, but if they think it's too much, they can, you know, you can have that conversation. But the important thing is to, of course, you don't want kids cheating on um, on things, but it is a tool, right? It, it's not, right. is it, a, you know, it's not cheating to use the tool. Exactly. You mentioned that the teachers were using it in the previous segment. Um, And how exactly are teachers utilizing Mm -hmm. AI and chat GPT? Yeah. So, so many excellent examples of how teachers are using this. Everything from, you know, taking the curriculum and coming up with lesson plans. They They put the curriculum into chat GPT and say, come up with a, you know, fun lesson plan, engaging lesson plan for whatever grade they're, they're teaching. So, Something that would have taken them days to develop is taking them, you know, minutes to review. Of course, you don't just take it first; you you review it and you put your own kind of spin on it. Um, so lesson plans are 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 a big thing. Um, coming up with fun activities again, especially for teachers that might not feel as comfortable teaching a topic because they're not trained in that topic. It's such a great way to uh, come up with activities to come up with. Um, like unique approaches, you know, one of the things that I, I saw a teacher do um, was that they, they put into ChatGPT, make me, um, you know, a lesson plan uh, for explaining, you know, history from World War One forward, uh, but write it in the form of a Friends episode, right? Mm. And, or, you know, <laughs> write it using Taylor Swift lyrics. Like it is, the creativity that can be used here is unbelievable. And it, do, it does. I tried it myself. Um, and it will put, you know, make these activities that are super engaging and super fun that you wouldn't be able to, you know, come up with. One of the other ways teachers are using it is to provide feedback to students at, at higher levels. So they'll put an essay in and say, give me, you know, some critical feedback about the way that this is written. And teachers are reporting in this case that it's giving feedback not only faster, but in much deeper ways than they would have even given it. Um, we also have teachers using it to do report card, you know, some parts of the report card. So there's lots of great ways to, that teachers are using it to minimize the time that they're spending on these very important but very time-consuming tasks, again, so that they have that time freed up to, um, to do other more important things that allow them to, to personalize what's going on in their classrooms. Right. And so I can see where there are some certainly some benefits for teachers. And if they start teaching in the form of friends episodes, I might go back to school myself. <laughs> Being Seriously. a huge fan yes, <laughs> of exactly. friends. Exactly. Yeah, it's yeah, awesome. Yeah. Um, and so people are naturally going to be afraid of, of AI, though. So what would you say to parents um, navigating this with their, you know, their young children who are just maybe entering the education system? 
because it's going to be, it's a whole new world from reading and writing and arithmetic. That's right. So kids that are, you know, we were just talking and, and with my colleagues yesterday, a couple of people have kids starting grade kindergarten or grade one. Those kids will never know education without AI. And mm-hmm. it's incredible to think about that. Um, but it, it will transform it. Um, you know, the way that learning and teaching is, is happening. The biggest piece of advice that I have for parents who, you know, are rightfully concerned or scared of this technology is get on and use it. Um, get on and play around with it. It's so user friendly. It's, it's, you know, you download it, you use it really quickly. Um, and you can see how it could be used in a fun way. You can see how it could be used in a not so fun way. So to, to do that with your kids is really important. Um, and, and one question, see, you know, one more question I have yeah. for you, Jennifer, I, I, we don't have much time left. I just want to ask yeah. you about students with learning disabilities and or learning difficulties. Yes. How will AI help them? And we've got about 30 seconds. Perfect. So it, it just is a, a tool to help personalize that learning. So kids that might be visual learners or might be more, you know, they, they might need to, to have material presented in a different way. Teachers can use that to, to create those activities in different ways, but students can also use it as, as like basically like a personal tutor. Um, and we're seeing that being done in the case of kids with just learning differences in general. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for the great information. I really appreciate you coming on the show. My pleasure. Honestly, I can't believe we're talking about this again, but it looks as though COVID-19 infections may be slowly starting to rise again in Canada, according to new data from the Public Health Agency of Canada. This week, they suggested, uh, they reported that there are signs of continued fluctuations in some COVID-19 activity uh, after a long period of gradual decline. Joining me on the line to talk about this is none other than microbiologist Jason Tetro, Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, host of the Super Awesome Science Show and author of The Germ Code and The Germ Files. On Twitter, you can find him at J.A. Tetro. Good evening, Jason. How are you? Hey, I'm pretty good. Good to be joining you. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me. I think people are wondering about COVID. A lot of people don't want it to come back. There's fear of lockdowns. Uh There's mixed messaging. Should I get the vaccine? Is it a monovalent? Is it a bivalent? There are the non-believers. There's a lot of anger, especially online. The anti-vaxxers and people who say masks never worked and other people who are considerate of of others and some who aren't, I guess the million dollar question is, where are we at with COVID right now? Well, we're pretty much at the same point now where we had been or have been and continue to be with the flu. What's happening is that the virus itself is essentially mutating. It's the second most mutatable virus out there, the first one being flu. And so what happens is that as it mutates, your immune system becomes a little less effective every time you get a mutation. And that's essentially where we are right now. So you've probably heard about uh, BA 2.86. You may have heard about XBB 1.9. And there's a new one coming out called FL 5.1 or something along those lines. All these are are just different variations of the virus that are circulating that are probably going to somehow find a way into you if you don't have some kind of barrier protection to protect your respiratory system. And the protection being staying away from others and wearing a mask and getting a vaccine, dare I say that word? Yeah. Well, I mean, the the non-pharmaceutical interventions are masking social distancing. We all know that, right? And then, Mm -hmm. of course, there's the opportunity of getting a vaccine. Now, the thing is, what has happened is that studies have shown that by getting the vaccine, you're giving yourself about 90 to 120 days of really good, robust immune response so that you can fight off whatever's coming around, which is why we're going to be having this new XBB coming out probably at the end of the month. The reason you get that is because then that gives you those three months that are most critical. In other words, the seasonality, you know, because we're going to be calling it COVID, flu, RSV, and norovirus season. It gives you that ability to be able to resist the virus over that period of time until it essentially dissipates or goes away so that 
you know, it's, it's at a low enough level that even if you don't have robust immunity, you're still going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And does the upcoming vaccine target the current variant? One of them. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> there are, like I said, there are three variants out there, okay? But mm-hmm. the thing is, the one of the variants was covered by the BA1, BA2 uh, that we all got last year. Well, actually, only about 17% of us got it last year, but you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And then another one, that's covered by the BA4, BA5, which about 12% of us got. And now the new one that's coming out is going to be protected by the XBB that's coming that we're going to be seeing at the end of this month. So if you did your routine vaccination schedules, you're going to have immunity against all three by the end of uh, October. And that's going to help to protect you for the course of the next you know, three to four months. Now, if you haven't had any of those vaccines, and it's going to be very difficult to get them until the XBB comes out, then you're in a situation where there's a good likelihood you may end up getting infected. And that's why we're seeing such a huge amount of infection going on in the United States right now, because about Uh two to 4% of the population were vaccinated against the one, two or the four, five. So the rest of them, essentially, once the two, eight, six or, or the XB 1.5 came around, it, it just essentially infected everybody. Right. Exactly. Yeah, that's how vaccines work, by the way. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh, To all of those who are (laughs) anti-vaxxers, who don't believe that they work. Um, But, you know, there was a lot of fear around the vaccines Mm -hmm. as well. And and the recommendation is if you have not had the, and correct me if I'm wrong, if you've not had an infection in the last six months, or it's been more than six months since your latest vaccine, most recent vaccination, then it is recommended that you get uh, this current, this upcoming vaccine. Is that correct? Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why, and, and I'm, I'm in Alberta, but we, I, I went to try and get a vaccine because I was doing some traveling and they're like, no, you have to wait till October because we don't want you to be in that six month window when the new one comes out, which I kind of understand. But yeah, it's a six month window that we're sort of looking at because although you get that nice robust protection for 90 to 120 days, three to four months, it's still going to help you up until six months anyways. And then, of course, you can get a new one. Or if the seasonality is, is right, in other words, it's you know going into spring and summer, then you're not even going to need it because it's really not around. And that's essentially you know where we're going. And like I said, it's going to be flu, COVID, norovirus, RSV season. And then you're going to be getting your vaccine for the ones that are mutating, i.e. flu and COVID, every year. Mm-hmm. The the trifecta plus one, um, and and you know you get a couple of those, <laughs> or two or three at the same time. You're in you're in big trouble, especially <laughs> or if, if you, you happen have... to be on a plane these days. Norovirus, exactly, exactly, which is horrible, Ab- absolutely horrific. You know, there was a study done out of McMaster University recently that was published mm-hmm. online um, in eClinical Magazine, a journal that's an online. Mm-hmm open access journal by Lancet, um, that actually demonstrated that we don't really understand how COVID infections work. And this actually, you know, that we're, we're always learning uh, about mm-hmm. how COVID infections work and ultimately the vaccines as well. Um, and yeah. they, according to this particular study done um, on people, including people in long-term care facilities, the people yeah. who'd had a previous infection it, they did not afford them uh, additional protection against future infections, at least for those people who participated in the study. Well, yes. However, you kind of have to add something that all the headlines didn't add. And that mm-hmm. was within the first month after having recovered from a previous infection. And that, believe it or not, actually makes sense. Because what ends up happening is, you know how like... You've probably seen it in the movies, right? You got the action hero who just slugs her way through everything. And then it looks like she's finally come out the other side. And then the villain's just waiting for her. And she's just, ugh. And usually, you know, swears. Um, That's essentially (laughs) what's happening to the immune system. It's going through a slog trying to fight off that first Omicron infection. And by the time it comes out on the other side, it needs some rest. (laughs) It's just tired. Right. And then if all of a sudden in those first 30 days, another Omicron comes around, which is what we saw with BA2 and then BA5, 
Right. You're, there's nothing you can do about it. It's just, it's going to knock you. And that's essentially why you have a higher risk of reinfection after you've had that prior infection. What's fascinating though, is that when you have the vaccine and you're in that vaccine zone, there's no effect whatsoever because essentially you're not getting infected. So, you know, it, it kind of, it's a really cool study because it really kind of shows that yes, indeed, your immune system is kind of like an action hero <laughs> and that <laughs> sometimes it's going to need some rest. Um, you know, we don't, don't start calling your T cells Jack Bauer. Though. Just don't. Um, but the thing is, is that it shows you as well that, you know, the onus isn't just on your immune system or on a vaccine to keep you safe. It's also on yourself. And that's where the non-pharmaceutical interventions like masking and social distancing really do come into play. Mm -hmm. And and social distancing, I mean, I still do that. You, you won't find me standing close to somebody in a line. I, I think that was fairly mm -hmm. valuable. And um, especially as I not have had not been wearing my mask took a break over the summer yeah. mm -hmm. <laughs> um you know uh, even understandable yeah even daring to go indoors and and not wearing it but still uh consciously staying away from people at least uh the six foot distance and i noticed that other people do the same thing as well yeah. um i wanted to ask you about the vaccines one of one of the biggest complaints or mm -hmm. um negatives about how COVID-19 was managed, the pandemic was managed, was that the science kept changing. And, and people were being, you know, some of the messaging early on was get a vaccine, you won't get COVID. And then it changed, get a vaccine, you still might get COVID, but you won't be hospitalized <laughs> and you won't be as ill and you are less likely yeah. to die. Um, so what are your thoughts on that messaging? Uh, that was delivered that that I think really did a lot of harm in terms of educating people around COVID-19. People weren't willing to accept that the science changed. All of these Facebook scientists, I might add. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, here's the thing. The science didn't change. <laughs> I know, mm -hmm. Dr. Henry, and I'm sorry if Bonnie, you're listening, the science did not change. What changed was the fact that people forgot it was a coronavirus. And a coronavirus mm -hmm. mutates. If this had been a polio virus, okay, you get your vaccine, you're good for life. If it had been a measles virus, you get your vaccine, you're good for like 30 years. Because it doesn't mutate. But right. a coronavirus is the second most mutating virus apart from the flu. So the problem is, when we had the original vaccine, it blocked 95% of the original strain. However, alpha came around very shortly afterwards, and that entire messaging went out the window. But they said the science changed. No, the virus changed. And the right. thing is, and, and I, have, I have been critical of the messaging coming out of Ottawa and in many of the provinces. I, I gave them a C, C minus, I think, or something like that. It was funny. I did this for one of the um, uh, media <laughs> people in Ottawa. Um, and, and, and what had happened was that they changed the science or they claimed that the science changed based on the fact that their protocols or policies had to change. That's not the way to get the public to follow and understand right. and actually become educated. What you have to do is find a way to be able to share the actual science that exists and then mm -hmm. say, we need to change our policies in order to catch up. Because honestly, when you have a virus that mutates 250,000 times faster than a human mutates, you're going to be changing your public health policies. My super awesome guest is host of the Super Awesome Science Show, author, also author of The Germ Code and The Germ Files. He is Jason, the germ guy, Tetro, and you can find him on Twitter at J.A. Tetro. Thanks so much for staying on the line. Jason, I appreciate it. Oh, it's great. To, uh, we're having so much fun here. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. Yes, we are. Wait till we start talking about masks. <laughs> and if you have a question oh, yeah. or comment, <laughs> the number to call is 1-877-399-9898. 1-877-399-9898. Jason Tetro will answer your COVID questions. Um, how do we compare to the U.S.? I know that the in the U.S. there's lots of um, concerns mm -hmm. about the spikes and, you know, there's issue, issues around um, of course, we have an election, a presidential election coming up in a year. And so there's lots of yeah. infighting over mask mandates and that kind of thing. How's Canada compared to um, the U.S.? And, and why are the cases spiking at the moment? 
Well, again, because we have these uh, variants that have come out that essentially are not people are not protected against them because they didn't get the vaccines. You're going to be seeing these uh, incredible leaps in the amount of uh, infections that are happening. And again, this is what we're seeing in the United States. The other thing is, and, and I'm finding this in Canada where I haven't really seen this in the States. If something bad is happening in our country, we kind of do something about it to protect ourselves. <laughs> in the United oh. States, they look and find out what their politics say first. And then they'll act on that depending on, and, and if, if of course it goes completely against public health, then they're just going to do that. And there's actually been studies that have shown that in areas in the United States where politically the um, population followed an anti-vaccine, anti-mask, they had normally um, higher levels of COVID and, and, and other problems. So, I mean, in that sense, you know, politics rules higher than common sense when it comes to public health in, uh, in the United States. And I think that's mm -hmm. the huge difference between there and Canada. I, I agree with you, absolutely. As an American <laughs> and a Canadian, I can say, I can say that, <laughs> um, <laughs> bi-national. Um, but, you know, where, where are we now? So also, um, we've got this new variant, mm -hmm. we're heading indoors, the kids are going back to school. Um, people yeah. have, you know, so many people, you know, if it, this is like the post, you know, there was a time maybe a year ago, people were like, COVID is over. It's over. This is like the post COVID mm -hmm. is over era. Uh, people are done with it. They never want to hear about it again. They're saying it wasn't real. Um, how do we then, are we going to have a bigger problem on our hand? Is this variant as infectious? Do, do people become as ill? Do they need to worry if they're going to be hospitalized or, or die or get long COVID? Yeah. So if you've been vaccinated uh, against any of like any of the vaccines, as long as you get your primary series, the likelihood of long COVID is pretty much lower than it would be if you had not been vaccinated. So just so you know, um, and we do see about 10 to 15 percent of people who get COVID who were not vaccinated having some kind of long COVID, not not, you know, the worst of it, but some kind of long COVID. So those are those are the numbers. Now, in, in terms of where we are and where we're going, um, what I want to say is that at the moment, it's still pretty slow. We're seeing a little bit of, you know, rises here and there. And we did see a little bit of bump at the end of August, but that was very short lived. Um, and now we're sort of waiting for one of the new variants to come. But again, it's only going to form a small bump if we continue to do, you know, the right thing, whether whether it be the social distancing, the masking, that type of thing. And then once we have the vaccine coming out, then there's a very good likelihood we're not going to see very much of a spike at all. Now, all of that being said, uh -huh. where we could potentially go is usually what we see in the first three weeks of December every single year. And right. that is hospitals are flooded with patients because of the flu. Schools are having a higher percentage of absenteeism because of the flu. And there is a number of people out in the community who essentially continue to go to work, continue to go to parties and everything, even though they are infected with something like the flu. That's where we're heading. We can't stop it. <laughs> We've tried to stop it with flu. We haven't been able to. It's going to happen with COVID as well, unless a higher percentage than about 41% of the population get the vaccine when it comes out at the end of this month or beginning of October, because only about 40% of the population ever get the flu vaccine at any given year. Right. Oh, okay. Very interesting. What do you think yeah. about people uh, having symptoms of COVID and not testing and people saying, I'm not testing. I don't want, I don't want to know. I don't care. And you know, <laughs> yes. it's overrated anyway. <laughs> Right. Well, I mean, the, the big problem right now is that there are a few COVID-like viruses that are out there at the moment, including a regular coronavirus, um, human uh, parainfluenza virus 1, um, and also metanumovirus. So the fact is, is that you may have COVID-like symptoms, but you may not actually have COVID itself. So the thing is, I like the idea of getting tested because then when you see, you know, just the C and not the T, you can go, ah, okay, good, not COVID. Um, but other than having that peace of mind, okay, the, it doesn't matter. If you have symptoms, you should be following the same thing. You stay home, you stay hydrated, you, 
you know, and if you go out and you go into anywhere, you wear a mask to protect other people. It doesn't matter if it's COVID or if it's flu or if it's RSV or whatever. So I, I would like people to sort of get out of the COVID focus and just think about all infectious diseases in that sense when it comes to the respiratory tract. Because the minute you breathe, if you're breathing a virus... <laughs> There's a good likelihood exactly. someone's going to be within six feet of you and you could be passing it on to them. And it doesn't have to be in an emergency room or a hospital. So if you happen to be in your local grocery store, you could probably still have the same thing happen. Absolutely. Um, really, we've got to stay home if you're sick is the big message. Jason, thank you so much. Really appreciate you coming on the show. And we'll definitely, I'm sure we'll be getting you back because I'm sure there will be updates as we head into fall and winter. Absolutely. Look forward to it. I am delighted, as usual, when she comes on the show. I'm delighted to have Dr. Tomi Mitchell here talking about Mitch McConnell's freezing. Dr. Mitchell is a medical doctor, family physician. She's also a productivity coach, and her website is wellnessstrategies.com. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell appeared to freeze again about 10 days ago. This was during a gaggle. Uh, with reporters in Kentucky, and he actually froze for about 30 seconds after he was asked whether or not he would run for re-election. He had frozen, if you recall, again, uh, or previously, for about 20 seconds before he was escorted away in July. He's 81 years old. Of course, the question remains, but we're not going to get into it because this is not a political show. Um, we touch upon it. The question remains is how old should somebody be? You know, should there be a cap? But, you know, constituents vote him in. And so that's who they want. Uh, joining me on the line to discuss the medical side of all of this and the issues and the dangers is none other than who I've just introduced, Dr. Tommy Mitchell. Good evening, Dr. Mitchell. Good evening, Maureen. Thanks for having me again this evening. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. Appreciate having you on. I've wanted to talk about this for 10 days anyway, <laughs> for a yeah. little while. Um, but I, quite honestly, I forgot last week. Um, but, you know, it's it's interesting that, in, I mean, it's sad. And I and regardless of where you stand politically, uh, where anyone stands politically on this, and, and, you know, some of the decisions, I certainly don't agree with some of the decisions that the Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has made in the past. And um, I do not wish poor health or anything. I don't wish bad for anybody, quite honestly, even my worst enemies. Um, well, maybe them. Uh, just kidding. Okay. But, um, you know, it's it's frightening. It's scary. Um, it's also confusing, perplexing, and, and also the way that it was dealt with. And there's been a lot yeah. of theories about it, Parkinson's disease and um, seizures and TIAs. Uh, and, and my thought and then I'm just going to give it over to you, is that um, because he had a concussion, a lot of people are saying it's related to a concussion that he experienced in March. My, my question is, did he experience the concussion because he froze and fell? If you notice now, he's always at a podium. Um, yeah. So, you know, we don't know about that. So what are your thoughts? You're the doctor. Sure. <laughs> what are your thoughts on Mitch I McConnell appearing to freeze? I love this topic because, you know, I'm very vocal. I speak my truth, especially on social media and, and real life. Um, I This is a classic example of when politicians should not be making medical decisions. I remember when that happened in July, like you mentioned, he looked like what appeared to be a TIA transit ischemic attack where he went numb, he couldn't talk. He just looks like a walking, like, I don't know how to put it without, he just, he doesn't, he's not okay. Okay, and that was, what, 19 seconds? And now we're at 30 seconds where he froze again. Something neurological is happening. And if I was doing his driver's medical to say, is he fit to get a license or get it renewed, I would take his license. I would revoke his license. So that's just a little tint of what I see as a physician. He's not okay. And for anyone who's experiencing numbness on their face, third speech, walking like a tin soldier, um, that's serious and you need to be seen in an emergency room that is not something that you should take lightly so yes and the doctors at first so i do want to ask you about uh, if you can just explain what a transient ischemic attack or a tia is to the listeners yeah so it's basically a stroke where you have some blood flow circulation concern and it's transient meaning it doesn't last for days and days on end but it can come and go but it also can be Herald to something sinister happening in the background, like 
there's lots of things that could be going on with this gentleman, and they're all concerning. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Capitol's attending physician, Brian Monahan said in a new letter that there's no evidence that the Senate minority leader, Mitch McConnell, uh, has a seizure disorder or that he experienced a stroke or a movement well, disorder, something like reading Parkinson's. The fine line. So maybe he doesn't have an epileptic or disorder, or maybe he didn't have a full-blown stroke, but perhaps he has a TAA, perhaps he has a tumor in his brain, perhaps he has blood, poor blood flow. So there's many other things that anyone who has experience in this field knows that, okay, please, um, there's something very wrong. If you look at his face, it's asymmetrical. One side does not look like the other. His eyes are very glassy, and he's very robotic. That is not mm-hmm. normal. No, it's I, and I totally agree with you. And, and I think the public has diagnosed him with either, and you hear this in the media, you know, was it a seizure? Um, was it, you know, does he have Parkinson's? He does look a little bit like he might have Parkinson's, the mask face, as you, as you mentioned, yeah, the one side. Exactly. Um, but um, we're not diagnosing on the air. Uh, and, no. and, you know, he, you know, the doctor has given him a clean bill of health. So did Trump um, get a clean bill of health? He was in the best shape of his entire life. So let's just take yes, that with a pinch of salt. That's exactly right. And don't forget, these are these two are politicians as well. So it's difficult. Exactly. But but I think it's, com- you know, we can, I think the bottom line is, is if you, as you said, if you're experiencing this kind of thing or these types of symptoms, you need help. There's something going on and you need to advocate for yourself. And sometimes yeah. that's, that's the bottom line. And, you know, a lot of people's jobs are tied to his role, you know, it t- uh, tied to his position, um, as well. Um, anyway, I do wish him all the best and hopefully he gets the appro is getting the appropriate treatment that he needs and, uh, and he returns to good health. Um, I also want to talk about Canada's darling, Um, Celine Dion, uh, she's had a very tough go. She had to cancel her tour. She made a very sad announcement last December. Um, what's going on? What's the update on Celine? And first of all, if you don't know, she has a autoimmune neurological disorder called stiff person syndrome. Can you explain to the listeners, Dr. Mitchell, what that is? Yeah. So we don't really know a whole lot what it is. So that's just, so if my answer is short, it's because we don't know a whole lot what it is. So basically, it's an autoimmune system syndrome when your body attacks itself and you get these um, muscle spasms and cramps that are uncontrollable and it can affect one or multiple parts of your body. It can cause you to have problems with your walking, your vision, slurred speech. Um, common in people, fourth and fifth decade of life, more common in women. And there's no... Treat, there's no cure. We can treat the symptoms to some degree, but there's no cure to date. And it's very and, and what? Are, and how does one treat the symptoms? What are some of the treatments for? Yeah, stiff so person if you're syndrome. having spasms, we give you antispasmodics, right? If you're having pain, we give you something for pain, anti-inflammatory or some other medication. We might do physical therapy to help strengthen you. We may do changes in your home so occupational therapy may come in and make your home more accessible especially if you're having limitations in your in your body so it's really symptoms as they come along we treat mhm and and i would imagine somebody especially somebody like Celine Dion you know ha- has anxiety she has three children um yeah. and and really her career has come to a halt uh, yeah. I know that her sister, one of her sisters is supporting her, living with her, and or I at least read that, read half, believe half of what you read and none of what you hear, um, but yeah. uh, that one of her sisters, and she has a number of siblings, is living with her in, in Las Vegas. Um, and, you know, it's got to be heartbreaking. And so would somebody need treatment for depression or anxiety? And, and yeah. would that help as well? 100%. So any chronic illness, especially one where we don't have this like cure, can lead to depression, right? That's Depression is our body's response to traumatic experiences and loss of one's identity. Celine Dion is absolutely amazing. She's Her life has been characterized by her singing and just her passion. And to have that taken away from her, that will cause tragic. depression. And not, I'm not knowing when next you're going to fall, when next you're not going to be able to use your voice the way she's so accustomed to lose one's voice. Right. So, and she is at increased risk of falling as well, is, yes, is yes. she not? 
She is because you're balanced. Like when we kind of trip over something, we can kind of move our arms and feet and adjust quickly. Like especially as we live in Canada, we've all walked on ice and most of us don't fall. Right? Right. But yes, absolutely. If you don't have that balance, you don't have those quick reflexes, you will fall because it doesn't take much to fall once you lose those things. Yes, like David has on heels all day. A listener mm-hmm. called David has texted in uh, and they say pins and needles sciatica. What causes this? Is it medication that causes nerve damage? He's had it for 10 years apparently and he's been suffering but had no warning. Yeah, very good question. So there's so many reasons that could be caused. It could be something vascular. It could be um, a pinched nerve. It could be something like a bone pinching on it. It could be a growth pinching on it. It could be vitamin deficiencies, a combination of many things. So sciatic is something that should be addressed thoroughly with your healthcare provider. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and oftentimes people do have to advocate for themselves and continue to go back and maybe get a second opinion. And oh, that is and, so unfortunately true. So true. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. It is. Uh, doctors are strapped these days. They're overworked. Um, you know, I, I was telling somebody, an American friend that, um, you know, you can go to the doctor and speak about one subject for 10 minutes <laughs> and they typically give you eight because they want the two minutes to chart. Um, and so they were stunned by this. And there's big differences between the U.S. and Canadian healthcare system. And to be honest with you, I'm not sure which one is better. But um, but it's hard to keep going back, and you get frustrated, and you're feeling pins and needles, and you can't. Your sensation is off, and I would mm-hmm. imagine that would lead to anxiety and depression as well, or have Absolutely. the potential to do so. Definitely. Well, I hope whoever yes. does them gets a team that listens to him, and you know. The what are causing Absolutely. Things. Don't give up, David. That's the message. Yeah, Dr. Yeah. Mitchell, thank you so much for joining the program. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Maureen. Have a good evening. If you're in a relationship where you find you're sleeping alone, and why is that? Did you ever have trouble falling asleep or staying asleep because of your partner? Does your partner steal the covers during the night, or do you have different wake schedules, sleep wake schedules? Is your partner getting up super early and then waking you up and you can't go back to sleep? Are you getting disturbed by snoring? Are you getting kicked in the middle of the night? People are taking to social media these days to talk about sleep divorces. Some people feel that has saved their marriages. We're going to need a whole lot more bedrooms and houses coming up. And with the price of real estate in Canada, I don't know how we're going to do that. But the idea of sleeping separately from your partner to get a better night's sleep. I mean, it takes somebody who's incredibly confident, I think, in their relationship. On TikTok, there are more than 355,000 views for the hashtag sleep divorce. And it's something you might want to think about. A survey from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine found that more than a third of Americans engage in one, at least some of the time. I, I mean, I know people who, I, I know people who have, are building two <laughs> master bedrooms in a home or primary bedrooms, I should say, um, in their home. And so one for one and one for the other. But if you are looking for a better night's sleep and you are getting disturbed by your partner, experts do say there there can be some potential benefits. And of course, the number one benefit that we can think of is that you're sleeping through the night. If one partner has a sleep disorder, you needs a CPAP machine, for example, um, it can negatively affect the other sleeper. And just because you've fallen in love with somebody or you're in a relationship with them, it doesn't mean that you have to sleep in the same bed together. I mean, maybe for a certain part of the uh, evening or night. Um, but then maybe it's time to go out, uh, and explore other parts of your home, sleeping on the couch, um, sleeping in another bedroom. And, And not everybody has the luxury to do that. Um, but bed partners tend to wake up at the same time when one has insomnia, for example, and that can really negatively impact your mood the next day. Um, your, productivity, your overall function. And so it can be very difficult. Also in, uh, I have a couple of my clinical practices, this is a big issue. She's a night owl and the other is a, an early riser. 
And so, uh, you know, he said, I'm, I'm going to try to get her to change that. You know, it's just something, it's very difficult to change other people and they're only going to be motivated by themselves. You cannot get other people to go to bed early. And it takes a while. This person goes to bed at like 2.30 in the morning, sleeps until 9.30, 10, doesn't have to be to work until later, does a lot of remote work. That's another issue. We're going to be talking about that next week. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it can be very detrimental to the relationship, not to mention people get jealous when their partner is, you know, can fall asleep on a dime and, you know, sleep through the night, eight, nine, 10 hours, whatever. But, you know, a person might report that their bed partner, their husband, wife, spouse, whatever, lover snores loudly. And they, that may prompt them to get treatment for sleep apnea. Um, you know, so you have to be honest with your partner about this issue and you have to be honest with yourself because oftentimes we're not honest with ourselves, with, you know, who we are and what we do. And we might deny how many people have tape recorded their partner snoring at night because so many people are in snoring denial. But if you're snoring and you're thrashing around the bed, it disturbs your partner. If you're getting up at 4 a.m. to go to work, or if you are getting up in the middle of the night many times, do email me. I can help you with that. Um, you don't have to get up in the middle of the night. Many times there's bladder retraining that you can do. Um, there are things that you can do to actually stop that, but these kinds of things can be very disruptive. And so, you know, also the other thing is people, some people can, I can sleep with the curtains open, the light on the TV on <laughs> nothing phases me. You know, my bed partner, on the other hand, needs uh, quite different circumstances, you know, blackout blinds and lights off, dead silence, the whole thing. Um, so it's very, very different, but um, nothing wakes me. So <laughs> even thrash around, hit me, doesn't matter in the middle of the night. The temperature, I don't care. Um, so it's, you know, it, there are, there are those of us who, you know, have opposite type of sleeping styles, if you will, but, you know, can get along quite fine. Um, we release oxytocin, uh, a chemical, that cuddling um, hormone, and, um, and things that give us a good feeling and bring us closer to the person, you know, when we're with that person. And so that can be very helpful. But sleeping separately should not be the solution is if a partner is having sleep issues. And in other words, it's best to get to the problem, seek treatment from a professional to identify this, if there's any sleep disorder, um, or if, you know, if you're getting up in the middle of the night, for example, going to the bathroom, there's a risk with that as well, like risk of falls and fractures. And, um, and also it's very disruptive to your sleep. And also sleep apnea is another one. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.